Uh, we'll hear argument now on number 95-386, Jason Richards versus Jefferson County. Uh, Mr. Baxley. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court, this is a race judicata due process question that we hear on today. To lead in, I'd like to give a short quote out of the case of Chase National Bank versus Norwalk. Justice Brandeis uh, said, unless duly summoned to appear in a legal proceeding, a person not a privy may rest assured that a judgment recovered therein will not affect his legal rights. That quote was also cited by Chief Justice in the Martin V. Wilkes case and quoted uh, along with some other quotes from Justice Brandeis in that case. The second little lead-in quote I'd like to give, uh, because it was cited, the case was cited by the respondent. It's a Fifth Circuit case, Southwest Airlines versus Texas International. And they quoted Judge Wisdom as saying, quote, denial of the opportunity to bring a suit raises serious due process questions. Further in the opinion, they quote, again, Judge Wisdom, because race judicata denies a non-party his day in court. The due process clause prevents preclusion when the relationship between the party and the non-party becomes too attenuated. In this instance, it's not only an uh, attenuated relationship, there's a non-existent relationship. There's absolutely... Mr. Baxley, there, um, your opponents cite a string of cases, uh, many of them state cases, in which some kind of claim preclusion doctrine or race judicata, if you will, has been applied despite a change in the identity of the plaintiff taxpayer in, in suits by citizens challenging tax laws in state court. Now, there is that body of authority, and how do you deal with that? And what's well, the extent of it? All of those cases that they cited in that footnote, uh, only two or three of them do I think really have application that they should... Uh, perhaps be arguable. All of them are state cases. I believe all of them are state cases. I don't believe there's a single case from this court or even a, a, a circuit court that they cited in, in that footnote. But uh, I think common sense is the best answer. These are cases that I think that the law, especially when you're dealing with a constitutional right uh, to, to have your case litigated. Uh, well, you take the position that there is no doctrine of claim preclusion in these citizen taxpayer suits in state court? I think the position that we would uh, take is, was uh, enunciated uh, in uh, your dissent, uh, in Justice O'Connor's dissent, in the Harper versus Virginia case, which is... But remember, that was a dissent. But it, it did not it conflict with the majority either. And, and uh, you quoted uh, United States versus L.A. Tucker Trucking Company and uh, Webster versus Fall. And I think your quote there was... Uh, some to the effect that uh, questions which uh, uh, merely lurk in the record uh, have no basis of, of precedent. And, uh, well, what if the court in the Beddingfield case here uh, had actually decided the issue that you're raising now? Would you be here? It would be a closer question. I think that... Uh, and what is your answer? Would, would you then be precluded? Uh, a new taxpayer from bringing the same challenge? I think you could make a good argument that uh, you were not because of, of, of non-privity uh, under the, the law as set out by this court. But I, I think that uh, certainly the, I think that the, can, the respondent would have a stronger case because here, this argument, a major constitutional right, 
has never, ever been decided by any court at any time. It's never been argued. It was mentioned in one amicus brief at the Alabama Supreme Court level, just mentioned in passing. You got a, a, a trial court that uh, wrote a five or six page opinion that never touched on this major right. Mr. Baxley, just to be clear on what's at issue, if in fact the matter had been decided in the prior suit, raised, litigated, and decided, then really it wouldn't be too significant whether you put a, a preclusion, it wouldn't be claim preclusion, an issue preclusion label on it, because you'd have precedent from the highest court of your state. You'd be bound by stare decisis. So it wouldn't, if they actually decided the question, if the Alabama Supreme Court actually decided the question in the Bedingfield case, then wouldn't you realistically be out of court in your suit? I think common sense-wise, yes. Uh, I think you could argue that uh, the, the claim for cute... I don't think technically under the law that either race judicata or... Uh, collateral estoppel would apply. But how about stare decisis? Uh, stare decisis, I think, would be would be enough to where it would make your, your burden almost in, in, unable, you couldn't overcome it. But I, Your case that. really depends on this issue not having been fully litigated and decided. Not having been litigated in any way. And uh, I think that that's the, uh, the law from this court, uh, well, repeatedly. Well, what if the state of Alabama decides to authorize uh, taxpayer suits, not in the sense of people who are being subject to a tax, but in the sense of uh, challenging ex expenditure of public money. You know, any, any person in the state who pays taxes may challenge the, and I think many states have this. Do you think a state has to allow more than one of those suits? No, sir, I don't think they have. But where there really isn't any, any personal uh, property interest at stake. I think my answer there would be uh, that, that you pretty well hit it on the head in Martin B. Wilkes in, in your opinion where you said it's really the burden is on the parties or, or on the parties that are litigating it to determine what the issues are going to be. When this issue was, was litigated in Bedingfield, if the county had really wanted to come in and have the due process I mean, and the, uh, the due process rights provided and the equal protection uh, matter settled once and for all, they could have brought it up. They well, know that, 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 I don't. I don't believe that's responsive to my question. Listen, please. My question was if. The state says we're going to authorize taxpayer suits. Any taxpayer can come in and claim that the public monies are being misspent. And A comes in and brings a taxpayer suit saying that uh, you, the, 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 this is a violation say, of the First Amendment, the, the religion clause, for the state to spend money this way. And then that's the, the highest court of the state decides that case against that taxpayer. And then taxpayer B, who wasn't a party to that suit at all, comes in and says, now, I'm, I wasn't a party to that suit. I'm bringing a taxpayer's action to challenge that same expenditure of money under the same provision of the Constitution. Now, can a state say, we're just not going to do that? This is a special kind of suit? I think for the same reason, the principle of stare decisis that uh, Justice Ginsburg well, had. I'm not talking about stare decisis. I'm talking about uh, maybe it's a brand-new Supreme Court of Alabama now. Maybe the Supreme Court of Alabama might be inclined to depart from its early ruling. But can the state simply say, we're not going to entertain this action? I don't think they, they could, and get by due process test, if they preclude that. If, in your, what's your, your, your example? If they, somebody came back and raised the, you gave the First Amendment, raised the First Amendment, it had already been decided, yes, I think a statute that set that out would preclude others from doing it. But if then they, somebody came in and said, now, wait a minute, this has not been decided on another constitutional ground. 
And I don't think that they stay. Well, I, what, I think what, they stay what, what if what if the law of Alabama is that anything that was might have was raised in the first taxpayer's action or might have been raised uh, is is just it's all over. There isn't going to be another suit. Does that violate some provision of the federal constitution? Yes, I think it violates due process. Why? Because uh, this court has held basically that, and the Alabama Supreme Court has held that over and over. Repeatedly. Well, held, are you talking, you say held that, you suggest that the Alabama Supreme Court in this court has held that in the hypothetical example I've given you, it violates due process? If, if you deny someone the right to fully and totally litigate a constitutional issue, however you cut him off, whether by case law or by a statute, then it would not meet the test of this court that this court says the due process rights transcend and, so to speak, uh, uh, would overcome, whether it be case law at the state level or a state statute. Mr. Baxley, but in many of these instances, these so-called taxpayer suits, you wouldn't even have any right at all to, to be in court were it not for the grace of the state that allows you to be a kind of a private attorney general. I mean, I think your taxpayer is someone who is paying tax and doesn't want to. These taxpayer suits where the taxpayer emerges to represent the public, are quite a different animal, are they not? Well, I think do, do you Do you have any due process right to bring a case that if you were in the federal court, they'd probably say you don't even have standing? I think that uh, we, you always have standing if you've got a major constitutional right that you say is being uh, infringed upon. That's not certainly not true. I mean, let's assume that uh, you have a... Uh, I mean, we have cases where the, the, the Constitution contains a, a statement of accounts clause, and we have held that a private citizen cannot sue, has no standing to sue, to compel the expenditures of the CIA to be disclosed under that provision. We say maybe it violates the Constitution, maybe it doesn't, but no individual has standing because it's a generalized interest. Now, we have that doctrine at the federal level because of uh, separation of powers concerns because we have a distinctive federal doctrine of separation of powers. The states don't have to follow our separation of powers doctrine. And if they choose to allow a suit in that situation, why is it a denial of due process for them to say, we're going to allow the suit, but only one? Whereas we don't allow the suit at all. How, how, can, how can they be in worse shape constitutionally than we are? I think the best answer there is a case of this court of Waters versus St. Louis. And it's so parallel to the situation we had here. Uh, the legislature of Missouri passed a law that said cities of over 700,000 people can impose a, uh, an occupational tax on businesses and individuals. But they said that uh, on businesses and on uh, proprietors that, that ran their own businesses, they could uh, do it on net and deduct their taxes. Uh, before the tax actually went into effect, a taxpayer in Missouri uh, file suit uh, on, on constitutional grounds. It got to this court, and uh, I believe it was uh, uh, Justice Jackson that wrote the majority opinion. You, but you, you very carefully and quite appropriately pick a case in which there would have been standing in federal courts. All, all that has been suggested by the Chief Justice and by Justice Ginsburg, and I'm suggesting the same thing, is that you're casting your net too widely. That there are, cert you have, there are certainly some actions in which the state allows a citizen to proceed with a suit where we don't. The construction of a bridge. If someone says that uh, uh, the construction of a bridge is, is contrary to law, the person is not harmed at all. Just says, I don't like federal money being spent for something it shouldn't be sent, spent for. Could he bring suit in federal court? No. 
He can bring suit in many states, simply on the ground that this money shouldn't be expended by the county or whoever it is. Now, your position is that although it's perfectly okay to deny the suit to anybody, the state cannot say, well, we'll allow the suit but only once. That the latter violates due process of law, but the former does not. That, that, that is not a very appealing proposition. I think that the state does not have the right to, by statute or any other way, cut off someone's right to litigate a constitutional issue. Uh, but if you have no right to begin with under the federal constitution, um, you have a taxpayer, an actual taxpayer, who doesn't want to pay tax out of his pocket. Isn't that quite a different case from what is labeled taxpayer suit and what that note in the brief is of the other side is filled with what we call taxpayer suits where someone emerges as champion of the public in general but is no more affected than the public in general yes your honor but we are talking about real taxpayers and that's a little different isn't it we're talking about real taxpayers and in uh, uh the hansberry versus lee uh, this court said that a state is free to call these actions whatever they want to. They can call them uh, virtual representation. They can call them class actions. If they call them class actions, they can uh, set certain rules. But the state cannot, in whatever they call them, they cannot deny someone's due process rights. Wait, to have do, you, do you say that a state can't even authorize a class action and have the result of that class action binding on members of the class? I think it absolutely can. But I also think you go back to the decision of this court uh, three weeks ago, roughly, in the Matsushita case, where in, in your dissent, you say that, uh, I'm sorry, Justice uh, Ginsburg's dissent says that uh, a state, you, know, you, you can have these class actions. I don't think this part of it conflicted with the majority. But you still, even in a consent settlement, you've got to make sure that uh, due process rights uh, of the adequate representation and things of that nature, that, that they still have got to be fulfilled. You can't cut that off in, in any way. What was the name of your Missouri case, Mr. Back? Waters versus St. Louis. And, and the, where is it? Uh, I, I don't see it in the index to your brief. John, it's in our, I know that it's in our... Oh, the amicus, uh, amicus found this case for us. The amicus uh, of the counties found that case and had that in their green brief. And then we, I think, cited it in our reply brief, Thank but you. that was Waters v. St. Louis, and there is a concurring opinion, two sentences, one paragraph, by Justice Douglas, joined in by Justice Black, where Justice uh, Douglas says that uh, I'll, I'll go with, my, with the rest of the court on the reading that the Missouri Supreme Court has not considered this scheme right now, so it's not right, but when it comes up again and is considered, uh, this case... Uh, But I bow to their reading of the record, saving for a future day the serious and substantial question under the Equal Protection Clause raised by the regulations which grant employers deductions for taxes paid to the federal government, yet do not allow employees a deduction for the same tax. Now, when this first case... Well, came, that, that sounds like a case in which the employees and the employers of all had some... Uh, property interest that was being taken away from them by the tax. I mean, they were being able to, re they were being required to pay the tax. That's what we have here, Young. I know it is, but the questions we've been propounding to you are the, are the uh, which you simply haven't responded to, at least so far as I can tell, are the other situation, where, as Justice Ginsburg puts it, uh, you have a taxpayer's action where the taxpayer is really a private attorney general. 
saying we don't like we think this money is being spent in violation of the Constitution even though they suffer suffer no particularized injury and the question is whether that kind of a case isn't perhaps different I from think it is different I think it's very different well then in order to agree with you we don't have to go as far as you initially urged us to say that in every case where a state allows suit it has to it has to require that uh, that a, a later plaintiff can bring the same suit. Let, let, let me put the question more specifically. Do you believe that your client would have had standing under federal law to challenge uh, what was done here if it had been done by the federal government? I think at the time of the first action, our client didn't have any standing period because the scheme had not gone into effect yet. No, but let, let's assume this scheme is in effect and it's a federal scheme rather than a state or county scheme. It's a federal scheme scheme, would there have been standing under under our federal law of standing to, to sue? Yes, yes, Your Honor. Well, it seems to me that that's the only only point you need sustain, that in the type of a lawsuit where there would be standing under the federal law of standing, in that type of lawsuit, at least, you cannot preclude a plaintiff who was not, uh, who, who was not uh, actually bound by the first judgment. I agree. Can, can I agree with that more more limited proposition and perhaps uh, fine for you on that basis? Your Honor, you can fine for us on any basis. Yes, sir, I would concur totally. Uh, I think that there are really four four cases. There's another case uh, that I, I think is very much in point about bringing this up again when it involves a basic constitutional right. And uh, this uh, was a case that, uh, again, they found for us. Respondents cited it. It's... Uh, Kwong Wing versus uh, Kirkpatrick, I believe, the Montana case. And uh, uh, they cited it, uh, I suppose, because it looked like it, it was a horrible case for us on the uh, equal protection issue. But uh, when, when I read that case, lo and behold, uh, uh, Justice Holmes, uh, it was a, a, a case where the state of Montana had imposed a, a, what looked like blatantly a discriminatory tax aimed at uh, Chinese laundries. And uh, just, Justice Holmes um, mentioned uh, in the opinion that an oral argument, he tried to ask uh, the, the counsel that was arguing about the equal protection issue, and the counsel wouldn't, wouldn't respond and denied it. might have been asleep like I was when uh, Justice Scalia was asking me. But uh, Justice Holmes said uh, uh, in his opinion, uh, he said that we brought this up, uh, this is going to come up again, uh, and uh, when it does come up again, uh, laws are frequently attacked by, by that, the, that the lawyers don't give the court anything to sustain them, and we don't want to sustain them. But when this issue comes up again, when it's properly attacked, a, because it's a constitutional issue, if it comes up again, uh, we're going to rule it. So I would think that Justice Holmes would, would be wondering if, if he thought that, that that opinion would be cited in, in later days by uh, people in the position of respondents saying that this opinion does not allow uh, the same party to attack it on the constitutional issue that he said they could, or how, how horrified he would be if uh, they said that that opinion by Justice Holmes prevented every future American of, uh, of Chinese uh, ancestry to not attack a, a ruling on uh, that basis because the issue could have been raised in Washington. But here, you, isn't it true that in this case, although it wasn't litigated, it was raised in the complaint, wasn't it? In the earlier case, it was alluded to in the complaint. Well, they quote the allegations that the statute 
violates the Equal Protection Clause. Not just alluded to, it was alleged in the... It was alleged, uh... But, but, not, but not passed on by the... Not passed on by any court, and uh, I would cite there... Uh, but it, it is clear that it could have been raised in that case... Yes, ...because yes, it was before the court. In fact, what if, what if they had, uh, what if they had actually litigated it? Would you then take the same position? Say they'd offered evidence on the, and the, and the trial judge had said, uh, no, I don't think there's any merit to it. And then the plaintiffs had said, well, we don't think this is our strongest point as a matter of tactics. We won't appeal the trial court's ruling. We'll just accept the trial court's ruling. I don't think that our position would, uh, we might take that position, but I don't think our, that we would succeed. Well, wouldn't you still claim that there was no privity? Yes. yes. So, and that, but the key to your case is not privity then? Not privity. No. We, we've got, if, if you look at what uh, issue preclusion, well, collateral estoppel doesn't apply here. Uh, we say race judicata doesn't apply. Uh, in fact, uh, I, I think this, this thing gets back to uh, Justice uh, O'Connor's thing, uh, quote in that uh, Harper case about it lurking in the record. It lurked in the record here, but it was never addressed. Well, it lurked in the complaint. It didn't lurk. It was there in plain English. I don't know what. But, Mr. Baxley, is I, you, you said that privity is not the key to your case. I thought it was one of the keys to you. I thought it, that was one of the prongs of your argument, and if you won on that, uh, you would, uh, on your view, be entitled to win the case. Yes, the, the absence of privity. Yes, Your Honor. Yeah. The absence of privity is yeah. certainly one of our strong arguments. And in every, almost every case that's cited in their briefs that in any way is contrary to us is, is, is uh, where you did have uh, but, I, but the, Justice O'Connor raised it earlier. Aren't there a lot of statutes out there and a lot of procedures in state courts where they allow one challenge only to some kind of a, a public expenditure of funds or a new taxing statute? They just simply don't allow a second. I'm sure they are, but, but this is not, they're all unconstitutional. It's not what we're talking about here. No, no, sir, not at all. Typical would be a statute along a challenge to an issue of municipal bonds or something, sure. where, where the bonds are going to be sold and they need a declaratory judgment in, in advance. It's uh, a validation suit, bond validation yeah. type suit. So, Your Honor, I thought about that. I think it'd be appropriate here. I think that certainly you could have one challenge. But, however, I think you've got to look at what Hansberry versus Lee says and the danger of uh, collusion, that you don't want to okay in advance one challenge where there's possible collusion, a friendly type suit to validate. Well, yeah, well, you don't, you don't have to get into that, do you? No. Yeah. All, all you have no. to worry about is the suit by the taxpayer who's actually paying the tax, right. and that's what you've got, and you're claiming that in those cases right. you've got to have some privity for an issue or a claim. Yes, sir. And we just finished the discussing that whole taxpayer suit category, and now we're into taxpayer who says, I got this tax bill, and I paid it, and I want a refund or the situation that you're in. There's an occupational tax and your client says, it's not fair to make me pay that tax. So, but if, wh why isn't it fair for the state to say, it's good enough to have in this category too, one taxpayer with a good lawyer fight out the case. So we're gonna apply in this taxpayer as taxpayer area. The same thing we apply in the municipal bondholder suit and the people who want to challenge the annexation of a county or Mrs. Frothingham who wants to challenge how public money is being spent. We're going to apply the same doctrine to all of them. You get a good lawyer in suit number one and, and fight it out and that's it. Because the, I don't think you can cut off someone's right to litigate a constitutional uh, issue that's, that's affecting them. And I, I, but we don't have that situation here. This is not, this is not a, an action that was allowed by statute. It just came on a declaratory judgment. Uh, 
And also, one important thing, and, and goes back to the question Justice Stevens asked, uh, the complaint uh, in Bettingfield, the first action here, never at any time uh, was there any attack made on the exemption scheme. It had not even gone into effect yet. Probably most people didn't even understand it at the time because the tax hadn't started taking effect yet. And so no one ever, even though it was in the complaint about the, uh, the equal protection part, nobody has ever attacked the exemption scheme until the instant case right here. And we, we submit there are some uh, possibilities that perhaps it would have been premature at the time Bettingfield came on since the tax was not being collected. It, it indicates that uh, in Justice Jackson's opinion in the St. Louis case. Uh, it might have been premature to have attacked the exemption scheme as early as they did. Justice Jackson mentions... Uh, I don't understand that at all. It, it would be premature. They didn't rule to dismiss the case as a whole because it was premature, did they? Didn't they rule on the merits of what the, of the issues that were raised? Uh, I don't know why the exemption issue would be any more premature than any other issue. No, nobody had been collecting it from them yet. Yeah, but they, that, that's true of the whole case, wasn't it? Yes, sir. And the court, nevertheless, went ahead and adjudicated the merits of the issues that it thought important. Yes, sir. Uh, I don't understand your prematurity. Argument. That was just mentioned in, in the St. Louis case. Yes. Uh, and the exemption scheme was definitely never even attacked. If I would be permitted to reserve the remainder of my time. Very well, Mr. Baxley. Uh, Mr. Slaughter, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. I do not think it would be an exaggeration to say that if this court were to adopt the petitioner's uh, truncated view of the due process clause with respect to representational suits, that they would overturn several hundred years of equitable development of class actions as culminating in Rule 23 of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure. Well, he, he claims that he's not attacking class actions. <clears throat> Justice Souter, I believe that by trying to rest this case on the authority, among others, of Martin V. Wilkes, totally ignoring the footnote number two in which the Chief Justice reserved from the implications of that case the whole panoply of representational suits, first of all, as typified by Hansberry against Lee, and also the second site in the footnote was uh, Rule 23 of the Federal Rules of Civil but, Procedure. But I, I, I think his point is that there is, there is no legitimate sense in which this can be called a representational suit. Well, uh, I think he is claiming that his, his clients want to sue simply as taxpayers. They were not in privity with any other taxpayers who were sued. And in fact, they want to sue on an issue which was not litigated. And he is saying that in no sense can you call the prior action a, a represent, representational suit as to my clients. I think that's as far as his argument goes. That may be his argument, but it is both historically and factually incorrect. The laws of Alabama have historically allowed, like the laws of other states, declaratory actions in which private citizens act as attorney generals to but challenge public But that is not, we've questions. just been over, all around that. Let's concentrate on the case of a taxpayer, a true taxpayer. This is not somebody who is coming forward as a private attorney general. This is someone that the state of Alabama is saying, you owe an occupational tax. All right, that's standing in the federal court, and it's certainly standing in the federal court. So let's forget about the taxpayer suits of the kind where you wouldn't have standing in federal court, where you're just one of everybody in the public and nobody is hitting you in your own pocket. Let's concentrate on those. Now, I do not know of legions of precedent that say 
you can have a virtual class action without notice to anybody in the class. That's what we're dealing with, and that's what I'd like you to address. Well, class actions under B-1 and B-2, which he is trying to certify in the petitioner's case, is exactly that kind of case. B-1 is a class action which, in the advisory opinion, was deemed suitable to test taxpayers' uh, questions That's of bond That's usually an injunction. Case. No, no. I beg your pardon, Your Honor. Let B1 give me an example of B2. a money relief case, case involving money, where people can be cut out without any notice. B1 is an appropriate vehicle. B1 of what? What are you talking rule about? Rule 23 of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure, as well as Rule 23 of the Alabama Rules of Civil Procedure, which are exactly identical. Your, Your Honor, if, if I may, th this suit, the Bettingfield case, represents a stepping stone along the evolution of English bills of peace, Justice Story's equity class actions in well, the 19th Bettingfield century. Bettingfield was not a class action, was yes, it? Yes, it was. I thought it was, it was brought it by, was, by uh, it was two it, actions brought by individuals and the city of Birmingham. That, that is the important distinction here, Your Honor, if I may make that. There is essentially no difference whatsoever between the Bettingfield case and if this had been a class action brought and certified under Alabama Rule 23, Paragraph B1. Bettingfield was not, let's clarify this. But it was a class Was action. it brought... In the name? Expressly as a class action no. and allowed as such? No, but it did not need to be in order to be so treated for due process purposes. And that's the precise point. If, if, if we can go through and compare Mr. the Mr. two cases. Mr. Brother, how does your argument um, stand against an important precedent in this court, a case called Mullane against Hanover Bank? where the court explained if someone's interest is being affected, there has to be an effort to tell that person. Not the best service that money could buy, but some notice. The distinction between due process and Mullane versus Central Hanover Bank is that the holders of the trust, common trust interest in that case, were not represented by anybody. The issue in this case is whether you have a why, class why action and they, a Why weren't they in, represented by the people who were there? There were some of the beneficiaries there. And that element, to some degree, was used by the court as a justification for not requiring a stricter standard of notice. The idea that some of the people would, in fact, uh, in, uh, local people in New York, receive the notice. But nonetheless, they felt that due process required going the extra distance in that case. Why, why if, assuming that, well, you may, I think you may be right that B2 is implicated here. Uh, the, the, uh, but I, I thought that this, the, there's a mistake that the court, state courts seem to have made. They thought that this taxpayer action was like the private attorney general taxpayer action, which is where these cases originated. But that isn't this. This is a case, isn't it, like a bunch of 10,000 people living in a city and the city puts up some noxious fumes, and all 10,000 people breathe them, so they want to proceed against a nuisance, or there's a giant accident, and it happens to kill or hurt 10,000 people. And there you would have, let's say, a B2 action for nuisance. But very well, I didn't find any contrary authority to the proposition that if you have a class action of that kind, 
You have to give notice to the other people. At least you should give notice. If Joe Smith is going to be the first person to run in and sue the city for the nuisance, or the first person to collect, Jones and 14,000 other people should at least have notice of what's going on and a chance to talk to the judge before they can be bound in res judicata, or at least I don't know why that shouldn't be so. Justice Breyer, neither under B-1 or B-2 of Rule 23 is notice required. I, I know it does not say that or, in the rule. That's the, the basis of my question. What I want to know is I couldn't find any authority that explained to me why there is not notice in B-2, why there shouldn't be notice, how those class actions work, or what conceivable thing was going through the rulemaker's mind and not saying you should have notice, given the pre pre precedent in the Supreme Court that you can't take a person's action away from them without notice. The That's explanation of that is to be found in the history of Rule 23 and the version that existed from 1938 to 1966. That version was, in fact, a, a, merely a codification of the kind of historic equity class action that had been governed by this court's Rule 48 and then Rule 38. It did not require any kind of certification for a class, nor did it require any kind of notice. The nature of the class was defined by the juror relationships between the members, by their common uh, identity, if you will, in terms of their interests, which were to be... I mean, did, did they bind? I mean, I would have thought... And it was binding. Oh, why? Because normally you'd think, in a situation where you're proceeding against an injunction, for example, for a nuisance, you would have thought the first person to sue is going to win or lose, and then stare decisis will take care of the rest. But I'm rather surprised that in such suits, that first person's suit could bind other people who suffered from the nuisance on issues that were not litigated. Now, if in fact that did happen under B2 or this historic practice in equity, I'd like to know why it happened, because it happening without notice would seem, A, very unfair, and B, contrary to the precedents of the court that say you can't take a person's action away from him without notice. The notice provisions of current Federal Rule 23 and all of the... Do not relate to B2. Right. You're right. Neither I'm to asking B, why. Neither to B1 or B2. Your Honor, my... Mr. Slaughter, that's not quite right, is it? There isn't mandatory notice because there are such a variety of cases that come under B1 and B2. But look at D3, which instructs the court to require for the protection of the members of the class or otherwise for the fair conduct of the action that notice be given in such manner as the court may direct. I assume from that provision that in a case comparable to the Mullane situation, a district court, if we were operating under the federal rules, and in Alabama, since they have virtually the same rules, would say, in this kind of action, you have to give notice. You will have to hire a process server, but you have to put a summons and complaint in the mail. Or I think that provision of the rule is a very useful admonition and a very cautionary one and a very valuable tool in the management of class actions, but I do not think it is mandatory for due process analysis where you have plaintiffs representative parties who truly represent the class in a public and impersonal question of the kind implicated in this in this case, namely just the constitutional validity of this tax. Why isn't that why isn't that not a not a B B one or B two kind of uh, 
suit, but rather a B3 suit. I mean, it, it, you, you're almost quoting B3. The court finds that the questions of law or fact common to the members of the class predominate over any questions affecting only individual members. I mean, you're... you're I, submit, uh, I, su I submit, Justice Scalia, and, and I believe the historical precedent for this kind of suit is, is on my side, that in this kind of case, there is really only a pure public question in a purely legal sense, not in terms of the economic consequences of the tax or the differences in burden that may result from its application, but for purposes of the litigation of the pure legal question, there are no private rights involved. Well, and why therefore, isn't, why isn't is this a property right here? Why isn't there a property right here being asserted by the plaintiffs in the present action? Uh, a, a right of action created by Section 1983 uh, authorizing individuals to sue for violation of their individual equal protection rights. Now, why isn't it that kind of claim being made here? Well, the fact isn't that they, it? Well, I agree, Your Honor. It is a, a, a kind of claim and that is covered by Section for, In order for a prior suit to somehow take away that property right and that cause of action, wouldn't we think due process would require some kind of notice? And wouldn't we also think it would require some kind of adequate representation of these plaintiffs in the prior suit? Absolutely, Your Honor. Has there been With any accommodation of adequate representation in Beddingfield of these plaintiffs and their suit? You have put your finger on the essential due process issue in this whole case, and the one that we would submit, if it is due for remand, that would be the first question that would be appropriate for the court to determine, namely the adequacy of the representation in Beddingfield. With regard so long as the court satisfies itself that counsel is, is an adequate counsel, other people who don't want to be represented by this council must be must be held to whatever he achieves. Is that is that the principle you're urging for? I mean, I thought if yes, I had sir. a cause of action, even if it involves a, a legal issue that's common to causes of action that other people have, I'm entitled to hire my own counsel and go litigate that myself. You say that we can dispense with that. And we can say so long as we satisfy ourselves, we have a good lawyer in front of us and that this lawyer is going to do as good a job as any other and we can tell the other people, go away. You, you must be represented by this person. The state can do that. To a limited extent in this kind of case, Your Honor. And what you, kind of case is that? What is different about this kind of case from the cases that the Fire was asked The litigation about? of purely public questions that are necessary to the operation of state and local government with some degree of reliability and finality. I understand... Well, what, what is the purely public question, in your view? Many, Your, Your Honor, you mentioned several uh, earlier, uh, for example, the, the validity of the process by which uh, bonds are issued, uh, the validity by which a tax is levied and the collected. The validity of any state statute? Um, many, but well, more so with regard to those that govern the nature of state and local government. And, and I can't give you well, a well, why, why, rule to sort them out. Well, why, do, why does a county occupation tax govern the nature of government? It does not govern the nature of government, Your Honor. It, it is merely a kind of, of, of issue that the levy of a tax is totally useless to a local government if it can be challenged in endless litigation 
Now, admittedly, stare decisis after a certain point may provide relief, but it has been the historic Anglo-American practice to use res judicata in this context rather than stare decisis. When you say historic, anything more inherently governmental than, than the criminal law, is it, is it really your position that once, uh, when one individual uh, challenges the constitutionality of a particular criminal law provision and loses, and maybe even chooses not to appeal, that everybody else is bound by, by the decision that that criminal law provision is constitutional? You say, well, you had a fair run at it. This person represented you when, it, no, when he challenged it. Absolutely not. Why is that any different? I don't understand that. Because of the nature of the representational suit, whether it be formally, structurally certified as a class so that the representative proceeds under those rules, or whether it proceeds in the manner represented by Hansberry against Lee, and which, which was prior to the adoption of state rules Father, why, why do we bother having class action at all? I mean, it's so much easier just to say, champion, come forward, get yourself a good lawyer, forget notice. It's, the, it's much more efficient. What... If you are right, then it's then it's, uh, uh, there's no need for a class action. Why would anybody want to bother to go through all that business of getting it certified? I mean, or if all you have to do is get somebody who is similarly situated, that person gets a decent lawyer, and that's the end of it. The case is decided once and for all for everybody. Uh, those who verge on the on legal anarchy, I think, would advocate that. And there is a but strong you are, are you saying that there are sometimes you do need a class action with the court to certify the class and notice to the members? Can you distinguish from me the cases where you do need a class action, if that's your position, and those where you don't? I cannot distinguish all, but I can tell you that the very class of case that we're talking about today Cases which need to determine with some degree of finality and reliability state and local government issues do need the possibility of class adjudication, whether it be in the traditional form, which I say the Bettingfield case was, or certified as a B1 or B2 class, as the petitioners seek to do in this case. In either case, it would constitute a final litigation of the matter and would enable government to proceed without uh, the, the constitutional cloud of uncertainty hanging over its head. In that respect, I think class actions are very useful, though they do conflict with this tradition in a free society that Justice Scalia was talking about. It is true that in the governmental context, normally the government feels comfortable proceeding with all the risks, reliance on the doctrine of stare decisis. Once they've got a Supreme Court of the state has ruled on it and passed on most of the issues, they figure things are okay. And something, somebody can always come up with some new idea, but to say they have to claim preclusion to give the government authorities sufficient confidence to go ahead with their uh, project seems to me carrying it a little farther than you really have to. Well, as I mentioned in our brief, Justice Stevens, we are not going to insist on claim preclusion in this case. I think an adequate uh, argument can be made for issue preclusion on the equal protection case. And admittedly, Admittedly, there are a number of cases where um, if, if, if a matter in, in question, for example, let's say the proper procedure for a bond issue had not been followed and the prior test case only dealt with the legality of its purpose, then clearly the second case would not be blocked. But in this case, the county... Bond attorneys, everyone relied upon the fact that the equal protection argument had been raised in the earlier case, 
and assuming that it was a class action that had the same preclusive effect as a B1 class action, it was deemed to be raised judicata with regard to that constitution. I'm a little confused. You just said you were not insisting on claim preclusion. Instead, you said issue preclusion. But issue preclusion, or what some people call collateral estoppel, requires not merely that the issue be raised, but that it be actually litigated and decided and essential to the decision. And it's those last two things, actually litigated and decided and essential to the decision, that you don't have with respect to the equal protection claim. With all due respect, Your Honor, I think it is present in this case. First of all, the customary rule with regard to judgments is that if an issue was raised by the litigants, whether or not the evidence was sufficient or whether or not the court specifically addressed it, if, if it was consistent with the judgment and a contrary position would have negated the judgment, then the decision of that issue is merged in the judgment. But that only goes to race judicata. That does not apply in a claim preclusion situation. I mean, Justice Ginsburg's very question is, uh, I, I, I think, that if you are going to in, insist on the position that they are cut off on an issue which was not, in fact, litigated, even though it may have been raised, then you've got to rest your case on race judicata, not on, on, on issue preclusion. Your Honor, what I am trying to say in that argument, and for that purpose we cited Crub versus Public uh, Service Commission of Ohio, was that as a rule of decision, not having nothing to do with raised judicata, just what, first of all, was decided before we get to whether or not that decision precluded anything, the proper rule is that the equal protection question was decided in the case. Now, whether it should then have, have preclusive effect either on a raised judicata or a, a, an issue preclusion basis was a different question. Right, and that's the reason for Justice Ginsburg's question and my question. If you are saying, as I thought you were saying, that you didn't insist on raised judicata, that you were satisfied to rely on issue preclusion, then you lose, it seems to me, on any claim of issue preclusion on the raised judicata point because it was not in fact litigated. It was merely raised. It may have cut off the parties to the first case, but it is not going to cut off the party, any, anyone else. On that point, you are correct, Your Honor. If, if, uh, if we cannot persuade this court that the appropriate rule of decision was that the equal protection uh, question was, in fact, decided by Bedingfield, then we may indeed be vulnerable unless the representational nature of the class action of the suit is sufficient to invoke the broader standard of claim preclusion. Could you go back to Justice Stevens and Justice O'Connor's question just for a second? Because it seemed to me that, that on, there are two equal protection claims, I think, that were raised. One was 500,000, and they might have litigated that one, I don't know. But the other one is the licensed professionals versus the other, and that was stated in the plate and then abandoned, or I guess, or they never got to it. So think of the second, all right? Now, I take it no notice. Is there, you're talking about tradition. The, the tradition of these class actions. Did you find any case, because I couldn't find one, but did you find a case which, going back as long as you want in tradition, would say, take, e.g., a nuisance run by the city that hurts 10,000 people, not a taxpayer action that is a private attorney general action. That's out of this case. This is more like a nuisance or an accident that hurts 10,000 people in their cars. Did you find any case where the first person to bring the nuisance suit would bind later people who did not have notice 
on an issue that wasn't litigated. That's the tradition that I think would be relevant here. And I'm, I'm not saying there is or there isn't. I'm saying I couldn't find such a thing. And, and, and I do see the possibility of such a thing falling under B2 and maybe the appropriate uh, uh, action order thing that Justice Ginsburg takes care of it. But did you find any no, such case? No, I did not, Your Honor. And that is precisely the reason why in the brief I said that perhaps the Alabama Supreme Court painted too broadly with the claim preclusion brush for purposes of, of due process and that it might be more a kinder and gentler due process application if, in fact, it were limited to issue preclusion. And, and if, that, if that were so, then I guess it wasn't just that there's no finding that the representation was adequate. What concerns me more than that is the fact that there was not even any notice. Well, Your Honor, with regard to this notice, I can, I can answer nothing other than a, a usage that has been sanctioned for many years as a settled practice meets the requirements of due process because, in fact, if you examine the history of this kind of representational suit in equity, the precursor of Rule 23 between 1938 and 1966, and its present operation with regard to B1 and B2 classes, which are the suitable vehicle for this kind of public issue, notice is not required in order to establish a class that is binding on all of the members of that class, provided that there has been fair and adequate representation of the class interest. And that was the issue in Hansberry v. Lee, which I submit governs this case completely. First of all... Mr. Slaughter, you, you mentioned that you, your case is a little shaky on the claim preclusion part, but you say uh, it's solid on, on issue preclusion. And since you do have a decision of the highest court of your state, is there in fact, any difference between stare decisis and issue preclusion with respect to these issues, the ones that were actually litigated and decided all the way up the line in Alabama? Is there any significant difference between those two labels? Just the necessity of going through the relitigation of this particular case again uh, Your Honor, and the fact that if someone doesn't like the opinion of the Alabama Supreme Court in that case, yet another plaintiff may bring the public law equivalent of a strike suit. But you can always bring a suit. And in both cases, it seems to me, the other side would move for summary judgment. In one case, would say claim, uh, issue, issue preclusion. In the other case, would say stare decisis. But, Your Honor, I think you will acknowledge that there is always a little bit more of a chink to get through the opening provided by stare decisis than there is with uh, raised judicata because the law evolves and that is taken into account with stare decisis. There's a little uh, more wiggle, wiggle. More wiggle room because you have more cases. It is not the authority of the single prior case but all of the cases that may be of similar nature that are to be taken into account for stare decisis. May I ask you one, one question on the distinction of stare decisis and preclusion? Can you cite me any case in which a plaintiff was found to be barred by res judicata, estoppel, whatever it might be, not stare decisis, by a judgment to which, in a case in which he was neither a party nor privity to, to a party? If he was represented adequately in the class, yes. I'm saying no class, class action. Because Benningfield was not a class action. Well, the most... Can, can, you, can you give me a yes, case? That, I, I think the Southwest Airlines case versus the Texas International case is very much on point in that regard, Justice Stevens, because the privity, if you will, was created in that case 
by the identity of interest in the single narrow legal issue that was presented, which was the litigation of the validity of a Dallas ordinance prohibiting the use of love field. And it had been decided earlier that that ordinance violated Texas law. All of the airlines who wanted to exclude Southwest from Love Field had a tremendous economic interest, but the court held that they were precluded from further litigating that question because their legal, as opposed to their economic interest, was indistinguishable from that of the city of Dallas and others who had litigated the same public question before. And that is a case, I think, that meets your criteria. Now, they had notice, though, in the sense of actual notice because of all of the publicity attending the case, but not necessarily legal notice within the procedural requirements of Rule 23. As I said earlier, I believe that this case is really governed by Hansberry against Lee, which stood for several very fundamental points. One, I agree with the petitioners that it said the states are free, subject to federal due process, to devise any kind of procedural vehicle for representational suits they desire. Secondly, those representational suits will bind the members of the class who are represented. Thirdly, it is a violation of due process if the representative of the class has a conflict of interest or does not adequately represent the members of the class, and that was the specific holding in Hansberry against Lee. And finally, Hansberry against Lee stands for the proposition that the question of adequate and fair representation in this kind of suit is a matter for retroactive examination by the courts when raised judicata becomes a question. And in that regard, it is consistent with the principle of Rule 23 that the certification of a class does not establish its preclusive effect for the future. Thank you. Mr. Baxley, you have three minutes remaining. No question, Bettingfield was not a class. Nobody ever considered it one. In contrast, the, the, the lack of notice there with what was deemed not sufficient in Martin v. Wilkes, where there you had uh, the... Uh, Birmingham Firefighters Association that appeared. Uh, these uh, later plaintiffs were members of the association. Uh, the court ordered that uh, uh, notice be published in, in both Birmingham newspapers for, uh, I think, 30 days or so. Uh, they, they solicited opinions, asked everybody to come in. They, these organizations represented these people. You had much, much more uh, uh, notice type uh, in, in the Martin V. Wilkes than you had here, where you have none, zero. Uh, secondly, uh, it could have been a class. Uh, the county, if they'd have wanted it to bar everything forever, they could have come in. The rules of procedure were in effect in Alabama for class actions uh, 10 or 12 years before betting field. The county didn't want to do that. They didn't want to make class. They hoped nobody would ever raise the equal protection. They didn't want to litigate it then. They don't want to litigate it today. They don't want to litigate it tomorrow. But that's uh, the, the party that should have made it that way uh, by your dicta or your, your ruling uh, of those parties are the ones that best know. And lastly, in the Southwest Airlines case that he mentioned just then, that was a very different situation than the Fifth Circuit rule. In that instance, the attorneys for the parties that were, quote, non-parties also filed amicus briefs. They attended the, the first, they sat through the actual first proceeding. There was a lot of different fact situations different in the Southwest Airlines case than here where you had absolutely no relationship. Because that was a Fifth Circuit case. Yes, yes, Your Honor. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Baxley. The case is submitted.